0: We had a little interruption last week, or not interruption is not the right word, break. Um, with brother Charles Elliott here last Wednesday night, and I trust that he blessed you. I know he blessed me. And I was, just had felt that when I had lunch with him, we spent about two hours at lunch last Wednesday, and there's some things that have been stirring in my spirit that I've been praying for. Um, I've had other ministers prophesy over this church recently. And as I was sharing with him, he began to share the same things. And I just, I, I just wanted, by the anointing, it's on his life. Because you see, what happens, you know, understand this, that what takes place when we stand and open God's Word together, get well, I stand and you sit and open God's Word together, is there's information passed on. So, you, you know, hopefully you'll leave here knowing something more than when you came. There are, there are deposits that are made in your, in your spirit by the Word of God. As you hear the Word of God and under the anointing of the Word of God, if you're, to the extent that you're open, it allows the Spirit of God to deposit things in you. But something else happens also. It's very important. That's why a sanctuary, we call it a sanctuary. A sanctuary means a place of refuge, but it's also a place of dwelling. When the Word of God is spoken in this place under the anointing of the Spirit, something goes into the spirit realm also. You understand there is a spirit realm out there. That what you see, feel, hear, and touch is not everything. In fact, that's just temporary. There's a spirit in this room right now. There are beings other than you and me. There are angels in this room. We don't believe that there are any demonic forces in this room. But there are spiritual beings and they affect our lives. They try to affect our lives. The Bible is very clear about them. Jesus talked about them. The devil wants you to laugh at them and make fun of them, dress up like them on Halloween so we don't take them seriously. But the spirit world is very real. It's where you're spending eternity. And so, but when we, the word of God is spoken under the anointing of the spirit, those words go out into the spirit realm because God has given us as men, I don't mean just males, but men in this earth, authority in this realm. Now, man turned around and gave it to the devil. That's why 1 Corinthians 4 4 says he's the God of this world. That's why when he went to Jesus and offered to give him back the authority of this world, the Bible calls it a temptation. He must have had something to give in order for it to be a temptation. But when Jesus died for you and you came to Christ, you changed kingdoms. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.13, you were transferred out of the dominion of darkness. That's His domain, His rulership, and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we're members of another kingdom. That means we've been given back the authority. That's right. why it is so important what you say out of your mouth. Because God has authorized you and given you authority to declare things. Jesus talked so much about the words. The Bible says a lot about the words that come out of our mouth. Proverbs talks a lot about it. It says you're destroyed or may your, your life or death are in the power of the tongue, your tongue. And when you speak words, they are going out into that spirit realm with spiritual authority. And, and either angelic forces or demonic forces obey your words. And I'm saying that in the context is this is a sanctuary where there's prayer that goes on in one form or another every day. This is a place where word, the Word of God is declared into the atmosphere. And I'm saying that that's why I asked him to speak last week because there's a different anointing on his life. And when he spoke those words under that anointing, I believe that things that had been spoken here before, there was an anointing to speak those words out. So whether we all understood everything or not, different people understood different levels of it. But what was important is those words were spoken out. And what it's like is if, you, if you've... know you, we don't understand that nowadays because our, our, uh, uh, our rooms that, you know, we have gas heat, it heats up water pipes and things like that. But in the old days, they had... had, had in the fi- old fireplaces, they had gas heaters and they had gas outlets for the, for the lights... And if you turned that gas on and didn't light it, what happened is the gasoline fumes would fill the room up and then if somebody came in and struck a match, it's kind of like that. The atmosphere is getting charged. It's getting charged. It's getting charged. When it gets charged enough, it just takes a little spark and whoosh, the fire of the Holy Ghost, the power of God to demonstrate Himself and as we were singing that second to the last song about God, how great God is, was stirring in me As I've said this to you before, we have no idea how great God is. Oh, we can read in the Bible, and we can say, yes, He's a great God. But everybody that has ever experienced Him in the Bible falls flat on their face. They can't stand up in His presence because of the glory and the power of God. Praise God. And I believe, I know we're going to get to see it. Praise the Lord. Did you find Romans chapter 4 yet? All right, what we're talking about is faith, and in Romans chapter 4, I'm going to read through it in a second, but I want to explain to you why we're going through this. In Romans chapter 4 is, to me, the clearest explanation of the basic elements of faith, and the reason we're, you know, we've talked about We've been studying faith since sometime early this summer. We've talked about what faith is. We've talked about what faith isn't. We've talked about how to release our faith. We've talked about how to develop our faith. We've talked about all those things, but now what we're going to end this discussion, this study with, is is understanding the, 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 the basic elements of faith, and the reason for that is because most people, when they run into a situation in their life, a crisis, whether it's an, an emergency, whether it's a need for healing in your body, whether, whatever it is that you need to go to God for and exercise your faith for, it's always in response to some situation because you apply your faith in a situation. Because what faith basically is at it its very simplest form is simply taking God at His word. Believing God means what He says and expecting that to happen in your life or in that situation because God said so in spite of what you see. That's really what the basics of faith is. And so, but what happens is we get into, the, into a situation where we're going to apply our faith, and we just start, we don't know what to do. And so we just start doing things because we're waiting to feel some emotion or something. And it's kind of like, you know, trying to throw, it's, it's kind of like trying to thread a needle with spaghetti. You know, there's just no direction to it. And I used this analogy, really two of them. Pilots, when they fly an airplane, they could have flown in a particular airplane 10,000 hours. They could be the only pilot that ever flew that airplane. But when they get in in that cockpit of that plane, they pull out something called a checklist. And they go through that checklist because they want to make sure that everything they're supposed to do before that plane takes off is done, even though they may have written the checklist. Why? The checklist is not bondage to them. It's simply a reminder to make sure that the basic things that need to be done in order to fly that plane safely have taken place. The other example I've used for you is—I've told you this story several times before—but it just, to me, it fits so clearly. Is you know, I went we went a number of I mean, a year or so ago into a into a Starbucks for coffee, and as I said, when I I drink my coffee just black, so they love me just a black coffee small. It's easy, but Anita has every permutation and commutation available, and I don't even understand half of what these things are she's asking for. And I asked him one day, because I heard other people asking for these different combinations in a different order, and I said, how do you keep that straight? He says, because we've been trained that no matter what order you tell us the different things you want, we've been trained to listen for them in a particular order. So if the first thing is whether it's, you know, regular decaf, next is the side, I don't remember the order, but there's a particular order so they can get your order straight no matter how you throw it at them. And, and life comes at us not, not orderly. It comes at us random and scattered and sometimes all piled up. And what I want you to teach you is how to take those situations that come into your life and then go through and look at a particular order to make sure that you, the basic elements of, of believing God are there and what to do or not do. So does that make sense to you? And you'll find these in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now, we've talked about this before. Paul is discussing faith here because in the first three chapters, he's explained that we're saved by faith in Christ, by, by grace, by faith in the, in the gift of what Christ did for us and not by our works. Now he's going to explain to them what that faith is that we're saved by. And so this is, he's using Abraham as an example of that. And of course, Abraham was the man back, way back in Genesis, starting in chapter 12, that God approached and God said to him, as far as I'm concerned, I've made you a father of many nations." And what we find as you read the story of Abraham is that didn't happen right away. When God spoke to Abraham the first time, Abraham was 75 years old, his wife was 65. They were both past childbearing age. Not only that, Sarah was barren. When she was in her childbearing ages, she still could not conceive. So there's three strikes against them being able to have a child. He's too old, she's too old, and she's barren. And yet God said to them, he made a promise to them, as for me, in other words, for my side, I have made you a father of many nations. That's in Genesis chapter 17. And what we're going to see here is a discussion of what Abraham does with that promise. So I'm going to read through this passage, and then I'm go th- we're going to go through the elements. We've already covered two of them, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those, but I'll show them to you as a review. So we're going to start in verse 16 here. Therefore it is by of faith that it may be in accordance with grace. In other words, God's using faith to deliver this grace to us, so that it might be according to grace. In other words, not earned, but it's a gift of grace. So that the promise might be sure, certain or sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. Verse 17, As as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, now not dead, die dead but dead in the sense of unable to produce life. In other words, he was impotent at that point. He could not produce life. Um, Being weak in faith, did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised... He was also able to perform. So we've been going through this and breaking it down. And the first thing we've looked at, and I've done a little PowerPoint thing here, so if you bring up the, okay, bring up that first element, It's to locate the promise of God. Now where that is in here in these Scriptures is in verse 17. It says, as it is written, that's the promise, I have made you a father of many nations, we first looked at that, we went back and we looked at that promise. We located where it was in in, 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 uh, Genesis 17, and we saw where God said, as for me, that's from God's side, I have made you. Not I'm going to someday. As far as I'm concerned, I've already made you a father of many nations. That's the promise. So the first thing is, is you've got to be able to locate what is the promise that God's made that I'm putting my faith in. Because your faith has to be in something He said, otherwise it's blind faith, and blind faith is no faith. Because the essence of faith is you're taking God at His Word. So you've got to know what the Word is you're taking Him at. So they say, well, I don't know what the promise is. That's your responsibility. That's why you've got a Bible. That's why you've got to spend time reading it. And... In order to help you, we've got a number of books in the bookstore that are designed to help you locate the promise that you need for your situation. We've talked about the fact that if you can find it in that Bible, unless there's something that specifically says it does not apply to you, every promise in that Bible is yours. Because God's written it to you, and all you need to do is believe it. So you need to be able to go back and to locate the promise that God has made. That's the first step. Now show the next one. Then you've got to know the one who made the promise. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of God, even God who can who can raise the dead and cause things into being that have never existed before. So what Paul is saying is the god that Abraham put his trust in he knew something about him because you can only trust someone's promise to the extent that you can trust them are they able first of all there's two things you need to know about that the one that promised it because the promise is only as good as the promiser and there's two things you need to know about them first of all can i trust their word because just because people make a promise doesn't mean they intend to keep it. Right? We have all know that by bitter experience. But there's another problem. Just because somebody makes a promise and they intend to keep it doesn't mean they're able to. Sometimes, and some of us have done this, we make something called a rash promise, which means we've made the promise out of our emotion. And so we, 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 we promise somebody something because we feel for their situation and we desire to solve it, and then later on we think back on it and say, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can do that. Or it may be that you can do it, but circumstances have changed and you're prevented from it. For instance, suppose you made someone a promise that they were moving on Saturn. You say, I'll, pro- I'll be there at 9 o'clock and I'll help you move. And you, and you are able to do that, you intend to do that, but on the way over, you get a flat tire and your car breaks down. And by the time you're able to get somebody to come there and fix your tire, it's too late, the moving van's already gone. So you were intended to do it, you had the ability to do it, but circumstances put it beyond your ability. All three of those are reasons why somebody may make a promise to you and they don't keep it which is why in Numbers 23, verse 19, God makes a very important statement to us. It says, God is not a man that he should lie. A lie is when someone tells you a promise and they don't intend to do it. Nor is he the son of man that he should repent. That word just means change his mind. So that word means, so God's not a man that he can lie, nor does he change his mind. So that's saying that all the experience you have about whether you can trust somebody's promise is all based on your experience with people, and when it comes to deciding whether you can trust God's promise, you throw all that experience out. Why? Because God ain't one of them. He's not a man. So what, what Paul is telling us here is the, you, you can trust God God's promise, because when you know who God is, the God who made the promise, let's talk about what he's able to do. What did Abraham understand about what he's able to do? He's able to raise the dead. Dead usually means it's too late, something's over. And we talked about Jairus and his daughter, and when Jairus was on the way, Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. He found out it was that because he stopped and ministered to somebody else. The servant came and said, it's too late, it's over the promise He made you that He would heal your daughter. He can't perform it now because she's dead. And Jesus grabs Jairus and says, Don't fear, only believe. In other words, it's not too late as long as you don't doubt Me. And because Jairus did not doubt, they go on, and Jesus proves that it's not too late. He raises her from the dead. But see, Jairus had to believe this same thing about Jesus. Jesus. That Paul believed that Abraham believed about God, that this God who made the promise is able to raise the dead. Now, understand what the promise that Abraham made to God the promise Abraham made to God is I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Now, we could spend a little time talking about that, because if you go back and study back in Exodus 15, you'll find Abraham asked God for a son. God approaches him and in essence says, I want to enter into a covenant with you. And Abraham's response is, what do I get out of it? It's interesting, God didn't get upset about that. He says, what do I get out of it since I have no heir and the only heir that's in my house right now legally is Eliezer, who is one of my servants. That was an acceptable way of passing your, heir, your your inheritance along. If you did not have a natural heir, you adopt one of your servants as your son. So he says, right now, with the way things look, the only air I'm going to have is Eleazar, my servant, because I don't have a natural air that's come from my body. And God takes Abraham outside, and he says, Come here, Abe. He says, Lie down here. He says, Just look up at those stars. This is comfortable down here. <laughs> look up at those stars. Just begin to count them. Now let me ask you a question, have you ever been out on the beach at night when there's no lights on? See, around here, if you go out at night, if tonight, if there's no, if there's no cloud in the sky, if you look up, you know, you'll see a few stars, but I'll never forget, when I was in college, my roommate and I drove across the country, and we were driving through the desert in, in, in Arizona one night, and we just stopped by the side of the road, and we didn't lie down on the, on the sand because it was at night, and we didn't know what else might be there. So we lay on the hood of the car. We just lay there in awe of the numbers of the stars. And that's what God's doing with Abraham. Because Abraham said, "Here's, here's my need. I don't have a son. And see, God thinks big. So he came to God with his one, which to him was overwhelming because he looked at his own body and said, it's, you know, I'm pretty well shriveled up here. She's not doing too well either. And she was barren all along. This doesn't look possible. I mean, I have some basic biological understanding here, and this is not happening. And, 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 and God's not talking about what can or cannot happen. God's talking about how many. And, 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 and in Abraham's mind, I'm sure, is having trouble getting past One, and God's got him looking at the stars. See, God knows how to communicate. He knows how to get you dreaming if you just cooperate with Him. So God didn't say, look, I want you to have many children. I want you to be... He says, let's just look at the stars. Soak that in. Wow. Oh, my. And about the time his senses were filled with the number of those stars, God says, that's the number of your descendants I see. He had to expand his thinking. God has to do that. He has to expand your thinking. Why? Because we forget that the God who made the promise to us is the God who hung those stars in the sky. See, Jairus got a hold of the idea that the Jesus who said, I'd come and heal your daughter is also the resurrection and the life. So the first thing that Abraham understood about the God who made a promise that I can give you children even when it's too late is that he's a God that can raise the dead. And the dead that needed to be raised was Abraham's ability to produce life. Because what happens here is God brings life out of Abraham and Sarah where there was no natural ability to bring life. See, that's what God's done with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says at the end, chapter 2 says at the beginning, and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Separated from God, goes on to say later on, and without hope in this world. We, we were dead, separated from God, with no ability to produce spiritual life in ourselves. But verse 4 says, but God. But God. The Amplified says, in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which He loves you, made you alive together with Christ Jesus. He made you alive. That's why He prays earlier that God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the, the exceeding greatness of the power that God displayed towards us when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Because the same power that He displayed when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same power it took to make you alive unto God. That power is still in you. So the promise that God made, the one that made the promise to God is a God who's able to raise the dead. And that's exactly what Abraham needed. He needed a God that could take his, his dead uh, organs and make them able to produce life again. To take his wife, who was barren, who could never produce life, and make her now able to produce life. And God's thinking of millions of descendants. And Abraham's still back on, I don't know how this one's going to happen. Because if you go through and read the story, Abraham didn't exactly believe this right away. In fact, he laughed at God. And then later, Sarah laughed at God. And then after about 20-some after about years, they decided this wasn't working too well, so they decided to help God out. So Sarah came up with a scheme that Abraham could have relations with his, her servant, and that was a practice that was accepted in those days. And, then, and, and so he did, and now he's, he's producing some life because she gets pregnant, and, and, and now Sarah begins to resent her. So they bring this son who's named Ishmael, they bring him and present him to God and say, See what we did? We took your promise, now this is very significant, we took your promise, now, here. oh this is good, we figured out what you intended to happen. Your intention was that we have a son, and, and trusting you alone isn't working too well. So we're going to find out another way to get the same result that we know is your will. So we're going to take things literally into our own ability. And they did. And they produced this son, and they brought him to God, and they presented him to God, and said, "See? Oh that Ishmael may live before you." God's answer was not pleased. He was not pleased. He said, "No. I said you're going to have a son, and you're going to have him one way and one way alone." And that's by simply taking me at my word and believing my promise. And it was still a period of time before they came to that place. And finally, when Abraham he appears to Abraham, just before he comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he makes this promise. He says, When I come to you again, which was nine months later, you will hear the voice of a child crying, and that child will have come from you. And at that point, Sarah laughs. And there's much more that he did. Now, it's interesting because we're going to see verses in a few minutes, maybe not tonight, but we're going to see verses that are going to tell us that that Abraham, that, that, that he did not waver in unbelief. And I can go back and show you at least five events that I would consider wavering. But you see, it's where he ended up is where God is testimony of him. See, it's not what you went through to get there. God doesn't count your failures and your stumblings and said, I don't think they're ever going to get there. God takes the final result when you get there and stamps that on eternity. He says, and they didn't waver in unbelief. Oh, he's so good. He's not sitting up there counting your failures and saying, that's one too many. I'm giving up on them. I'm gonna go find somebody else. He's a father. I know with our children, when they learn to walk, every time they'd fall, i get them back up again, brush them off, and say, here, go at it again. Fall again, get them up. Because the Father wants to see him walk. He wants to see you receive the promise. So the second thing is you've got to meditate on who it is that's made the promise. Because that's where your confidence is going to be that not only will He do it, but He's able to do it. Two things. You've got to know He's willing, and you've got to know He's able. You've got to know He's willing, and you've got to know He's able. And so you've got to know the promise. That's why Jesus covers this same issue in, Mark, in, his, in the teaching we were studying in, in, for, through most of this study, which is Mark 11, 22, 23, and 24. We're so familiar with 23 and 24. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up, and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes what he said shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe, pray, believe you receive them, and you shall have them. But verse 22, Jesus starts the discussion by saying, have faith in God. And in other words, know the one who made the promise. Yeah. Know the one. Now, how do I know him? By reading about him in the instruction manual he's given us to reveal what he's like. Locate the promise he's made and know the one who made the promise. Okay. The next one. Show the next slide. Choose to believe the promise before you see it. Is that what it says? Okay. All right. Choose to believe the promise before you, before you see it. Now let's go to verse 18. Who, this is Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope, believed. Contrary to hope, the New American Standard says, in hope against hope. What does that mean? How can you be contrary to hope in hope? It means contrary to every natural reason to be hopeful, he hoped. Now understand this. Hope in the New Testament, the Greek word for hope, is a little different than the word for hope that we generally use. We generally use hope in the sense, you know, you know, are, are you going to be able to make it? You're going to be able to make it to the marriage seminar on Sunday, Saturday. I hope so. Well, that doesn't. I, I now know a general sort of weak expression of your intention, but it doesn't give me a lot of confidence. The word hope is a word that means confident, steadfast assurance. So, what this is teaching us is that once we have the promise and we we know the one who made the promise to us, now there's a battle that goes on because the only reason you're having to use your faith is you don't see the answer. So that if you're having symptoms in your body and you go to the doctor and the doctor examines you and says, ah, don't worry about that, that's nothing wrong with you. You don't need your faith to believe that, do you? that you're well, because the doctor's told you well, he's done tests on you well, he can show you the test results that prove to you in, in, with our natural senses that there's no problem. So you don't need faith there because you can see evidence, tangible evidence, and we talked about that before, you've got tangible evidence that you're not sick, that everything's okay. All right. So, but when you, when you don't have that tangible evidence then you have something speaking to you telling you there's something wrong that's robbing you of your hope you're going to be well. So you've got to apply a hope that goes against that natural lack of hope. I hope I didn't lose anybody there. Let me say it again. So in a situation where there's no natural basis for hope from your senses or your reasoning, what you have to have is a hope that's beyond that, that's steadfast. And we talked in Hebrews 11.1 one says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So it always starts out with having to have hope. And I explained it to you this way. And we understand after last night what, how this works. That we have in our hallway a thing called a thermostat. And it's a programmable one. So I've already said ahead of time what temperature I want the house because I've got it set down to go down at night, but I've got it set at a time about half an hour before we're going to get up for the temperature to come up to, a per- to whatever it is, 68, let's say. So when that thing comes on at 68, that doesn't mean it's 68 out in the living room. All that means is the temperature has... I've told that thermostat where I want the temperature to be. That's my hope it's not 68 out there, certainly not this morning. But what the thermostat does is the thermostat is connected to a thing in the basement called the furnace. The thermostat does not have the ability to change the heat in our house at all. But it is connected to something that does called the furnace. The furnace has the power to raise the temperature in our house up to 68. But the furnace is just sitting there passive until the thermostat tells it where we want the temperature to be. And that's how hope and faith relate to each other. Faith is always in the future and it is setting a goal where you want whatever the situation to be. Now that hope has to be based on something God's promised. The fact that God's promised to you is a basis for having hope. And hope is important. Satan comes at you, first of all, to steal your hope. Because if he can steal your hope, your faith has nothing to work with. Hope is, when you lose your hope, you give up. You stop, the furnace shuts down. There may be enough oil in the tank, and the furnace may be in top operating condition, but if the thermostat's turned off, no signal's going to go to the furnace to produce the heat. And if your hope is gone, then you will have, even though you may have enough word in you, you won't activate it because you'll have given up. And that's what the enemy's often after. If he can get you to rob you of your hope, then whether you've got faith or not won't matter. And so what Abraham did is even though there was no natural reason for him to think that they could have a child because God said so, he now had a hope that was beyond natural hope. So in hope, contrary to natural hope, he believed. He believed so that he might beca- I'll never forget the day. I was going through this, and I was at that time I used the New American Standard, which if, if I'm not up there reading it, it's probably what I'm going to give to you. I went, I've gone through this so many times that it's like ingrained on the inside of my eyelids. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become. You hear the order, the order there? It's very, very int- intentional. He believed so that he might become. He had to believe first so that he might receive what God said. And so often our natural thinking is, I can't believe it unless I see it. And what Paul's teaching us here is you won't ever see it until you first of all believe it. In God's system of receiving from Him, you have to believe first before you're going to see. And here is the proof of it. There's other scriptures I'm going to show you. He believed in order that he might become. In other words, if he did not believe, he would not have become, which is why God said in Genesis 17, As for me, from my side, I have already made you a father of many nations. But Abraham had his side to it. Before he could hear the cry of that baby in his tent, he had his side which was what was necessary to receive the promise. All your faith really does is put you in a position to receive something that God's already given you. Your faith does not make God do anything. God's already done it. He did it before this world was formed. We studied a few weeks ago, a number of months, actually a few months ago at this point. We went through Hebrews 12. And we saw where it said, excuse me, Hebrews 3 and 4, where we said that we are to labor to enter into His rest. And we found out what His rest was. His rest wasn't that God's taken a nap because He was exhausted from creating the universe. We saw that He's not resting because He's tired. He's resting because He's finished. There's nothing more to do. And what we are to do is we are to enter into His rest. Not rest because we're tired of standing in faith. We're to enter into His completed work. He completed your salvation and everything that's included in it, everything you're ever going to need, it was completed when Jesus went to that cross and it was completed in the mind of God before the earth was formed. So from God's side... He's already given it. How come I don't have it? Because there's your side. And it's not simply because God's standing up there says, Look, I want them to prove themselves. I want to put them through a test and see if they'll really trust me. No, it's by the very nature that where God's created all this exists in a spirit realm you can't see. It's already yours, but because you can't see it, you're not enjoying it. So how can I learn to enjoy something I can't see? By faith. Because faith gives substance to something you can't see that already exists. So it's faith is what is needed to receive something God's already created. He created it when He made His promise. Because it came out of His mouth. He created when he came out of His promise, but in order for you to receive it, you've got to believe that it's yours. Yes. And that is an act of your will. It's not an emotion. It's the same thing Jesus teaches His disciples in Mark eleven twenty three 23 and 24. He says in 24, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire... When you pray, when you ask me, believe that you've already received it and you shall have it. Believe you've received it and then you'll have it. That's the order. Because you can't receive something you don't believe is yours. You can't receive it because you can't see it. So you've got to believe it's yours by the eye of faith, not by your natural eye. Believe that you receive it and you shall have it. He believed in order that he might become according to what was written. In other words, according to what the promise. So he still had to believe it in order to become what the promise was. Let's go look at Hebrews chapter 11. So once you know the promise, and you've spent time, and we'll talk a little bit about this next week, you've spent time meditating on who who it is that promised it, then you have a choice to make. And this is the first thing I want you to see. It is an act of your will. It's not an emotion. So many people are judging whether they're in faith or not by how they feel. If that's true, then it would not be fair of God to, contempt, to condemn people to hell because they refuse to believe in Christ. The only thing that's fair is if you have a choice in what you believe. You're following me? Yes. Because somebody say, well, I can't believe. That's not true oh, that's too hard for me to believe. That's not true. It is an act of your will, which is why God can be fair and hold you responsible. Because the only thing He's fair and can hold you responsible for is acts of our will, our choices. And there's scriptures you can go through. And it's, in people that reject Christ, that refuse to put their faith in Christ, it's referred to as disobedience. And if you go through Hebrews chapter 3, he talks about their refusal to enter the promised land. They came back, it's called unbelief in one scripture in that section, and then it's also referred to as disobedience. Unbelief is disobedience. It's a refusal to believe what God said. And see, emotionally it doesn't always feel that way. Oh, it's overwhelming, but it's a choice you make of what you're going to believe. And so you've got a promise. You now know who it is that's made this promise to you. That's really all you ever need to know. Which is why it's fair for God to require us to believe. Because to choose to not believe is to say I don't trust his the God, I don't trust the promise he made or I don't have confidence in the one who made the promise. I mean, bring it down to you. If you give your word to somebody and they laugh at you and say, I can't believe that. That is not just a statement about your word, it's a statement about you and what they think of you and their confidence in you. So contrary to hope in hope, he believed in order that he might become. Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's what we turn to. Now faith, and this, we've talked about this before, is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Faith makes tangible. That's what the word substance means there. Some words, some translations you'll see confidence. It's the word, Greek word, hypostasis, And it is translated in some places confidence. But I've gone back and studied the, the, the basis of that word and it comes from a medical term that was used to describe what happened when they took, when they took fluids And they sat them in a a jar for a while and they found that what happened is solid material in that would begin to settle to the bottom and there would be clear liquid at the top. So they referred to what settled at the bottom as hupostasis. So what that tells me is that solid material was was all along in that fluid but you couldn't see it because it was suspended in there. I think that's the term they use in chemistry. It was, a suspend, it was suspended in there, but when it was allowed to be still and settle down, the, the substance that was in there that you couldn't see now becomes separated from the liquid itself, and you can see the substance. That's what that word literally means if you go back and study the root of it. And so this verse is telling us That our faith gives tangibility to things that you're hoped for that you can't touch. I can't touch it with my hands. I can't see it with my eyes. So faith is the substitute for my not being able to touch it. It gives me the same level of assurance in here that I would have if I could put my hands around it. So I... In hope against hope, I believe something I can't see so that it becomes something that I can see. And that belief is an act of my will. So you take the promise. Whenever you run into a situation, make sure you got the promise. You go back and you study that promise. And we'll talk later about how you don't waver, because that's one of the next steps is you don't waver. How do I stop from wavering? And I'll show you what you've got to do. But I want you to understand, when you run into a situation, the first thing you do is you identify the promise. If you came to me and said, Pastor, you know, I'm believing, I'm saying, what's going on? Well, I'm going through the struggle. Are you believing God? Yes, I'm what's your promise you're standing on. You ought to be able to tell me what that promise is. You ought to be able to tell me where it's located in the Bible. I go to bed at night speaking that to myself. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I speak that scripture to myself. And we'll talk more about meditating on it. Because it's not just knowing where it is in your Bible. It's not just memorizing it. Memorizing is not good enough. Memorizing it will help you because you won't need to have your Bible with you all the time. It's not enough to memorize it. I've talked to you before. Memorizing is like eating food and then spitting it out and you enjoyed the taste of it, but it didn't get down inside of you. Memorizing is not bad, but it's not enough. It's meditating on it. It's chewing on it until it literally becomes part of you. And you've got to meditate on who the one is that's made the promise. That's almost more important. That's almost more important. Just think, what what, 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 what can God do? Because what happens is you look at that situation and you think, that's just impossible. Well, yes, it is to natural science. But we're talking about a God who creates things that never existed with His words and He already gave you His word about it. The power to heal your body is in the word God spoke about healing when He spoke those words. That's when the power was released. It's the same power that holds those stars in the sky tonight. Because it's the power that said, let there be light. That's the same power. But see, because we don't worship God enough, we don't thank God enough for the things He's done and for the, and for the beautiful universe that we have around us, we think, we shrink in our mind, we shrink God down into our terms. Amen. And we think He's, you know, we think He's an excellent doctor. We even use that expression, we call Jesus the great physician. And he is in a sense, but he's so far beyond a physician. I can say this about doctors because I was a professional too. They practice medicine. I practice law. I didn't perfect it. They don't perfect it. But God's perfected. His word is perfect. So you locate the promise. You meditate on and you think about the one who made that promise to you what's he able to do okay well let's think what he's done that's why again why it's so important in your own life to be thankful just go back over what god's done for you what's he done for you that was supernatural has he healed your body ever has he delivered you financially ever has he saved you there's a miracle if he could do that, why can't he handle this? Is it because he suddenly changed? No, because he doesn't change. That's another quality of God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord God. I change not. There's no variableness, uh, uh, James 1, 17. There's no variableness nor sa- shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, from whom there is no variableness nor a shadow of turning. That's the God who made the promise to you. Build your hope up a little bit? In hope against hope, then you've got to choose once you've got that promise and once you know who's promised, you choose as an act of your will. I don't care what things look like. I believe that what God's promised me is the truth for me.